in a real live event, especially one where your life's in danger, there's uh, significant things going on, radios, uh, multiple uh, decision-making points, um, fear, you know, that is potentially going to increase reaction time astronomically. So believe it or not, there's been a myriad of studies over the last probably uh, 15, 20 years in regards to how fast does it take an officer to draw uh, and fire his firearm or to even, you know, with his finger on the trigger, a light comes on. How long does it take him to perceive that light and, and move and react to that stimuli? And a lot of even the most, again, the most simplest uh, situations, you're talking upwards of uh, 0.31 seconds for a simple response time. So that response time applies retrospectively kind of to a stop shooting response. So if I see a threat in front of me, a handgun is displayed, it's pointed at me, and I make that decision to shoot and I begin that process of shooting, the individual, you know, how fast can an individual turn from facing towards you to facing away from you? It, it can be very, very quickly. Uh, you know, I think some of the four science research has that down. I don't want to quote a time, but it's, it's less than a second. City streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. Well, welcome to another exciting episode of A Thread of Evidence. I'm your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, and we are joined today by forensic expert David Blake. David is a member of our Forensic Death Investigations team, and welcome to the show, David. Thank you, Dr. Martinelli. It's an honor to be here. Well, I, you know, I'm just so happy that you decided to join with us tonight because what we've got going on is we've got uh, listeners uh, from a variety of uh, audience backgrounds and I'm sure we have a lot of civilians that are looking at uh, possibly careers in the forensic side and CSI and that's what this show is all about. So David, I want to start off right from the beginning. Uh, you have a significant law enforcement background and you made that transition uh, from investigator to forensic ex expert. Why don't you discuss a little bit about what that transition has been like? Was it a paradigm shift for you? Absolutely. Um, you know, I don't think anybody really understands whether they are, uh, you know, someone in the civilian sector or even the law enforcement sector. Uh, I think very few people understand the depth of what we do as experts in forensic analysis. Um, you know, that, that transition for me was quite large. When I, when I think back to my law enforcement career, I worked for a relatively small, well, a medium-sized agency. And, 
you know, patrol officers there, unlike larger agencies, are required to take an investigation from the beginning until the end, unless it's extremely significant, like a rape or a murder. So I had a, a pretty significant background in doing investigatory work. Um, but when you transition into the forensic analysis field and you start looking at cases, uh, the, the way that we do things, I think, is much different than your average detective uh, with a law enforcement background. You know, their purpose is to investigate and move expeditiously uh, and professionally through a case and get it done correctly. But ultimately, as they do that, they start getting a picture in their mind as to what the outcome is and the direction that they're going. Um, and that, that sometimes can have an influence on the final outcome. Um, but as a, as a forensic analyst, we end up ultimately sitting down and we get everything at once. It's not this drawn out process that an, a, a street investigator would have. We, we have all the data, all the evidence, all the video, the interviews, the audio uh, right there in front of us. And we start working through each piece of evidence and ultimately developing uh, something that I hadn't heard of as an investigator, but uh, became very clear as a forensic uh, forensic expert, is uh, fact patterns and developing fact patterns from the evidence of a case. Ultimately, as you sit down and start going through an investigation, you take pieces of evidence, and, and I would summarize it by saying you put them in, in boxes, and the boxes start filling up. Uh, and, and the predominant fact pattern, the box that is most full, is what you base your opinions on as more than likely than not having had occurred during the incident because we weren't there. But that's not something that you'll typically find a police investigator uh, or a, even a detective doing a case in that fashion. We get, uh, you know, very few of us are on shooting teams anymore. I mean, I'm still on a couple of shooting teams, but it, it, it's it's rare that you get called up as, as compared to TV. But uh, for the forensic death investigations team, we get deployed quite often, but they're all cold cases. And, and what do I mean by that? I mean, the case... Uh, I mean, a newer case for us would have been something that, that happened uh, just a few months ago. Sometimes we get cases... That have happened years ago. I think the average case that we receive uh, is usually about a year and a half old, right? Right, and and that you know that gives us an opportunity again to get everything at once, and and you really have a the view that you get as an expert and analyzing these cases is is very much different for that factor alone, if not for other reasons. So it, it is a it's a unique perspective. Uh, and I think it's it's uh, it's an exciting perspective because there's nothing better for me, uh, you know, as, as strange as this may sound, is when you when you get the case, you don't have that real umbrella overview of what occurred. You, you've got maybe a brief, but then you sit down and you have all these documents and pieces of evidence to sift through. And ultimately, as, you know, as you progress, the closer and closer you get to the end, a, a picture becomes clear. And when you're finally done, you can step back and push away from your desk and you have an aha moment. Um, it, that's how I would describe it. And, you know, you, you, you've gotten a, a big pile of basically a mess when we get it because the documents are all mixed and, and 
we have to sort through all these things. But ultimately, you have that aha moment where you, you feel very satisfied and very firm in your objective understanding of the case based on the fact patterns in lieu of any other information that, that might bias that decision. Well, you know what? Let's just get involved in one of your cases. Let's run past one of your cases so that you can describe uh, for our listener and our forensic team members uh, what it's like from your perspective as a forensic investigator and expert. Okay. Well, um, you know, not not stating where cases were from or or who was involved. um, I'll I'll be vague in regard to that. But uh, I, I do remember I had a shooting case uh, some time ago, and it was a it was a defense case for an officer, a criminal case, and the officer had been involved in a shooting, and he had been charged uh, after a what my my opinion was a bit of a faulty investigation, but he had been charged criminally. Uh, he was tried, and the result was a hung jury. So he was tried a second time, and somebody had been uh, in one of my human factors classes and requested that I take a look at this case. So I got involved, and I again, I got all the information uh, from this case that had been gone through by a myriad of investigators. A lot of time had been spent on this case by you know judges, uh, a, a jury. Uh, attorneys and other investigators. And it was, you know, again, an aha moment occurred with the application of human factor science to this case. And, you know, because under. Sure. And for our audience, David, that's one of your areas of expertise. That's uh, use of force and human factors. And that that's uh, the main reason we uh, we dragged you into the death investigations. team. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and that's absolutely right. And that's what was so great about this opportunity, because, uh, you know, without getting too deep into it at this point, you know, understanding how human beings work in an environment, which is, you know, in essence, human factors, you know, allowed me to look at this case from a different perspective and a unique perspective in regards to law enforcement investigations. And as I sat here and looked at this case, I had an, I had an aha moment and I reached out to the attorney. And one of those aha moments had been, it was, was a point in time right before, before this, this uh, law enforcement officer fired his weapon. He, he ducked. And, uh, you know, a portion of this case was in reference to him not having fear or reasonable fear to have used his firearm in this, this instance. And when I saw that duck, I called the attorney and I said, did, did anybody see this? Did anybody mention this in the first trial? Because to me, uh, knowing what I know about fear responses and the orienting reflex and some other psychological uh, applied sciences, that was clearly you know, an objective piece of evidence that showed that he was in fear of a short proximity to when he fired his weapon. And none of this was brought up in the trial. You know, you know, um, and that's just one small piece. Yeah, you know, they, they miss so much, uh, so many things that are obvious to us and we look for deliberately as uh, people that use applied science and we use the objective standard are missed on investigators and prosecutors. You know, we're throwing out this word right now, human factors. Maybe you could take just a, a couple of moments 
and inform our team members and audience what human factors consist of. Okay, so human factors basically is a, a applied science or sciences of the, involving the interaction of human beings with the systems that they are involved in. And for our purposes, when I use the word systems, I'm really talking about the environment. So how the human being interacts with the environment and the tools that they use and the environmental stimuli that they are exposed to. And what that includes is when I said science is, we're talking about areas of, of psychology and physiology that may include uh, attention and perception, uh, psychomotor skills, vision science, uh, response time, cognition, memory, and, and, and oh, under cognition is memory and decision making. And each one of those uh, deserves a, a little bit of um, time so that your audience actually understands what each one of those means, because each one uh, really brings a unique perspective to a law enforcement case uh, where, where they, the fact patterns indicate that the science may be applied to this situation. The vision things, the, uh, the issues of, uh, of hearing and auditory occlusion, loss of hearing, you know, uh, diminished hearing, exclusion, actually, which is the, the loss, uh, those types of things, the perceptual narrowing, the tunnel vision, uh, all of those things are rarely uh, talked about or even demonstrated on your, you know, kind of fake TV uh, CSI shows. But for people like us, especially those of us that are involved in homicide cases, officer-involved shootings, civilian self-defense shootings, those things are can be critical to our overall analysis and the determination of objective facts. Oh, and, and that's, that is critical. And that's something that even many members in law enforcement, to include investigators, don't understand. Because when we look at, for instance, and this is just a, an example, uh, law enforcement involves shootings. And, you know, as you know, we are, are bound to look at that through the Supreme Court decision, Graham versus Connor, which establishes objective reasonableness. And basically what we're looking at is the severity of the crime, the level of resistance from the suspect and the potential of injury uh, from that resistance to the officer or others. We, we evaluate that through uh, situations that are tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving without the benefit of 2020 hindsight, in addition to the fact that we have to look at the totality of circumstances and the information that is known to the officer or should have been known to the officer at the time that he made the decision to use force. What is so vital about some of the things that you mentioned in regard to perception and attention and, and distortions and auditory occlusion, not being able to hear or not seeing things in the same way or seeing them at all, uh, you know, that is a, a very substantive issue when we start looking at what did that officer know, uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of science and there's hopefully maybe we can get to some examples of situations where people would assume it almost to the level of it almost seems an intuitive inference that an officer, this person had to have seen this or they had to have heard that when in fact, when you look at the science, that may not be the case. And that goes a long way in making a determination of what 
was reasonable in that moment in time. Because if you didn't experience it or you didn't hear it, uh, then that's not a fact that you were exposed to. No, and, you know, we hear this all the time. We we hear this in the media. Uh, You know, an officer is... uh, facing an, an attacker that uh, that comes at them uh, with an edged weapon and the officer uh, deploys deadly force and, and they dump them. And how many times do we hear from the media or from politicians or from activists and, uh, and just uninformed people, well, why couldn't you just shoot them in the leg? Why couldn't you uh, shoot the knife out of the hand? Why couldn't you do this? Why couldn't you do that? And, you know, that's all speculative and based on on nothing but you know watching uh, TV shows where you know cops on TV uh, you know do that, but for us we are experienced investigators, and you know some of us are firearms instructors, use of force instructors, and uh, we know exactly what officers feel and and whether they could in fact you know wound somebody or shoot the knife out of the hand, and whether that's prudent to do so or extremely dangerous. And, and certainly, I mean, what we're, what we're talking about is possibility versus probability. And some of those things that you've mentioned are certainly are possibilities. But if you're the individual that is in that position, are you more, and, and your life is at stake, uh, are you more willing to associate yourself with a, a probability or a possibility? And, you know, a probability is, is much more successful uh, outcome-wise so therefore, you know, when we look at these things, we we understand from a, how human beings work, their capabilities and limitations. And when you put them in high stress, fast, rapidly evolving situations, those capabilities or, and limitations, uh, you know, are in a in a pretty constrained box. And we have to be realistic in the application of science and forensics to those those situations. And I and I think this. It, you know, when I do that, it's exciting to me. And, and I always, when I teach this to students, to law enforcement, I tell them that one key point that I, I hope that your listeners get is that this science exists. A lot of people aren't aware of it. They aren't aware of the uh, of application of it, but it's, it's well over 100 years old, a lot of it. And it has been empirically validated, peer-reviewed, published, uh, generalizable. It's been done over and over again, shown to be uh, prudent. However, uh, we cannot, as the experts who want to apply this science to a case, no matter what it is, uh, we can't just stick, you know, kind of, I say, throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. We have to have those originating forensic fact patterns that are very associated with these scientific uh, applications. We have the big discussion, at least in the use of force community, in the forensic community, is trying to uh, get judges in courts to understand that this is a critical uh, forensic science for them to consider. They, they tend to think a lot of times just like civilians do, because I think people would think that judges are very well trained. Well, they're very well trained in the law, but they're not very well trained at all 
in terms of police practices, use of force, deadly force, uh, the different types of less lethal weaponry we use, uh, officer safety tactics. I mean, they're just not informed. And sometimes they actually give experts kind of a hard time uh, being able to get up in front of the jury as educational experts and, and explain these things. And that is absolutely, in my professional opinion, is absolutely critical that the jury become informed because some things that, that judges, for instance, think are obvious are not at all obvious nor properly understood by the trier of fact, which is not only the judge, but if it's a jury trial, it's absolutely the jury. So when we come back, Dave, I'd like to talk with you about uh, some of the more fascinating dynamics of officer-involved shooting, such as uh, officers saying that uh, suspects attacked them from the front and they shot, but when we take a look at an autopsy report and evidence, we find that suspects have holes in their backs. Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com For a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Tired of watching the same old, same old sporting events? Well, kick it up a notch and get ready, America, for something you've never seen before. It's the new generation of Western superstars. Shorty Gorham's American Freestyle Bullfighting. The newest, most extreme, premier Western sporting events. Shorty Gorham's American Freestyle Bullfighting pits one freestyle bullfighter against a Spanish fighting bull in a matchup best described as the most dangerous dance on dirt. Who will win? The acrobatic, tough-as-nails Western superstar or the mean? half-ton fighting bulls on earth the future of extreme sports this is not the bullfighting that you remember this is one of the most extreme sports you'll ever see in an arena this is hand-to-horn combat on a level playing field for more information and schedule of events go to shortygoramafb.com or find them on facebook that's shortygoramafb.com or find them on facebook it's bullfighting time Well, we're back, and when we left off, our forensic expert, use of force, and human factors specialist, David Blake, who's with me, and I were talking about uh, various human factors. And one of those human factors is referred to as action, reaction, perception, lag time. Let me set this up for you, Dave. Um, We get an officer in a case, and the officer states that... uh, the assailant uh, brandished a knife or brandished a gun and he felt that his life was being threatened or maybe the lives of his partner or third parties, uh, but especially him, were threatened. And he drew on that armed suspect and he fired. And the suspect goes down, but upon analysis and review of the autopsy and medical reports, we find the suspect has a hole in his right side and a whole square in his back. And now they're looking at the officer as maybe being culpable in a wrongful death case with excessive force. Why don't you take our team members through such an analysis? 
Right. And so his, historically, I, I've read some things in the that have been, they're a little older, where judges and even police executives have made comments that an individual shot in the back is a de facto uh, use of excessive force. And we're evolving. I think we're, we're understanding that that may not always be the case. Uh, and, you know, when we sit down and we look at what is, again, 100 years worth of re reaction and response time academic literature that has been validated time and time again. We'll start there. Uh, when we look at the response time literature, we find that Generally, people take about 250 milliseconds to respond very quickly to a cue. Uh, one stimulus, one cue. The science, and you can find this in just about any cognitive, college-level cognitive science book that uh, you, you, know, you may find, basically you start increasing the stimuli or increasing the choices that an individual have has you increase the length of that reaction time and that response time. So in the most simplest of settings, and I'm talking a red light comes on, you push a button. Human reaction time is, is generally about 250 milliseconds, maybe a little bit less uh, when we start looking at, at a bunch of studies together. In a real live event, especially one where your life's in danger, there's uh, significant things going on, radios, uh, multiple uh, decision-making points, um, fear, you know, that is potentially going to increase reaction time astronomically. So believe it or not, there's been a myriad of studies over the last probably uh, 15, 20 years in regards to how fast does it take an officer to draw uh, and fire his firearm or to even, you know, with his finger on the trigger, a light comes on, how long does it take him to perceive that light and, and move and react to that stimuli? And a lot of, even the most, again, the most simplest uh, situations, you're talking upwards of uh, 0.31 seconds for a simple response time. So that response time applies retrospectively kind of to a stop shooting response. So if I see a threat in front of me, a handgun is displayed, it's pointed at me, and I make that decision to shoot, and I begin that process of shooting, the individual, you know, how fast can an individual turn from facing towards you to facing away from you? It, it can be very, very quickly. Uh, you know, I think some of the four science research has that down. I don't want to quote a time, but it's, it's less than a second talking also about uh, a, a life threat, okay, and the cues of a life threat, there's basically, you know, a few things that, that a well-trained officer or even a civilian can do. Number one uh, is, is take a defensive uh, response, which is fight. The other thing might be disengage away from the threat, which is fleeing. The third thing is posturing. Well, posturing is like yelling and screaming and pointing a finger and kind of puffing up your chest, kind of like when an animal gets puffed up. They are posturing. And number four is referred to as hypervigilance, which is generally defined as uh, panic, confusion, or freezing. And the last one is surrender or submit.
So the officer that is threatened, as you indicated, has such and such time to make a decision of what one or two things they're going to do. They might decide to fire. They might decide to disengage as they're firing. It, it's very, very difficult for anyone, uh, including an officer, to do more than three things. And, of course, it's not prudent to do three things. Then you really get confused. <laughs> okay? But in that time where there, that action, reaction, that perception time with all of the distortions, there are temporal distortions, there are uh, physiological distortions uh, and problems and obstructions like we talked about, tunnel vision, uh, hearing problems. There could be distractions, as you indicated, sirens, radios, people screaming. Uh, all of those things play a role in the overall uh, reaction time for the officer and also when he's going to stop shooting. So, Dave, take it from there. Right. And basically, you're talking about psychological principles of, of total response time and psychological refractory period and in addition to what's called the Hicks Law. So those are things for your audience to Google at one point in time. But uh, in summary, um, you know, it takes time to start an action. It takes time to st stop an action. In uh, total response time, when, you know, people generally say uh, when they look at how long it takes to, for instance, uh, react to brake lights in front of you and stop. Uh, people often call that reaction time. And from an academic perspective, that's not correct. Reaction time is from the point that the stimulus presents itself until you have made your decision. So you haven't even moved yet. So that would be consistent of seeing the red lights in the car in front of you and making the decision that I need to hit the brake. Movement time, which is the other half of total response time, is the time it takes you to move the foot from the brake, or in the police officer example, the time it makes it takes for that officer to move his hand, put it on his weapon, and pull that weapon out and pull the trigger. Uh, and we know that the you know from several uh, empirical research studies that that takes anywhere between 1.5 and even as far out as 2.5 on the farther, farther ends, generally the average is two seconds. So what happens between that decision-making point and when the officer has already presented his, or in the process of presenting his weapon and or pulling the trigger? Uh, one aspect that we have to be cognizant of is, is psychological refractory period. And that is the time is once a decision's been made, uh, you know, there's kind of like a bottleneck. You know, those two signals are heading uh, towards the, the motor response, and one signal is going to go through the bottleneck before the other, and you, you can't pull that back. An example of that would be the, the, the football juke, uh, where uh, you know, the, the individual is returning a kickoff, and as the defender is coming down the field, the, uh, the individual with the ball makes that quick juke move to the left or the right, and the, the, the defender has to commit. Uh, and that's, you know, he ends up going one way while the ball carrier goes the other. Yeah, that's a totally great example. And, you know, there's some other things that can interfere with the officer's ability to have a timely response 
uh, to an attacking suspect. And I know we're doing at Martinelli and Associates uh, for the last year, we've been uh, researching and uh, doing experiments on the, the so-called you know, so 21-foot uh, rule. And we're finding that there are so many different variables. You know, one of the things you mentioned was the draw from the holster. Well, it also depends on what kind of holster you know, the person has, the officer has, you know, does he have a, is he a detective where he might have a threat level one, which is more like a friction holster, or does he have a threat level two holster, which has a, a locking device of some sort that uh, secures the weapon. It could be a, a strap, it could be a, a button, uh, it could be a lever, or is it a threat level three that requires the officer to do three separate movements before he even gets that holster, uh, that gun unholstered? Well, look at everything that could be happening with our attacking suspect. Absolutely. And sometimes by the time you defeat those mechanisms, uh, that person could already be on top of you. And uh, we showed that with our videos on numerous. Right. Videos. Absolutely. And, you know, that goes to training and law enforcement. I mean, human factors can be uh, put on the front end as well. Uh, and, you know, I've always been an advocate of law enforcement. Uh, needing to put human factors, science into policy, procedure, practice, uh, and training so that they can potentially prevent some of this stuff from happening. But, uh, you know, other fields have done that. Uh, you know, the transportation community, the medical community, the aviation community, uh, they are all, um, you know, fairly well surrounded by human factor science. They use it to, on the front end uh, and, and on the back end in the investigatory process. But, but one thing uh, I, want, I want your audience to, if they, if they want to experience this action reactionary gap, this concept, uh, you know, I, I suggest a, a Nerf gun challenge where uh, you get two Nerf guns, you stand, you know, 10 feet away, you have one one person who's going to play the the bad guy, uh, keep the Nerf gun down by his side, finger off the trigger, and you have the officer stand ten feet or so away, and that individual is the police officer, and he's going to bring his weapon up, put his finger on the trigger, and be ready to fire at his opponent. And that officer is told, "You respond at the movement of your opponent," and. What I've done this many, many times, not only with Nerf guns, but with uh, training sim munitions. And you find that the officer fires either just a hair before, at the same time, or a hair after. Now, all three of those are unacceptable for the officer, because all three of those are pretty much going to ensure that he's at risk of serious bodily injury or death. Um, and that's not an acceptable, acceptable outcome. So, you know, when you consider those type of situations and, and, you know, anybody can do that and put that into practice to experience it for themselves, then you might come to, a, to an understanding for why certain things happen, uh, why law enforcement is, is trained to react in the way they are, why they uh, shoot center mass um, based on that probability, possibility conversation we had before. And just the simple fact that uh, that reactionary gap exists where, you know, generally law enforcement officers are, are on the reactionary side. Not always, but generally they are. And, and, you know, also what happens during these stress inoculated incidents is they can really prove deadly. 
and tragic. Uh, and officers uh, can get prosecuted for these things because what happens is officers sometimes, if they have new equipment, uh, they haven't been well trained on the equipment they have, or they're transitioning from one piece of equipment to another, uh, and they're not doing it properly, they can sort of experience some level of hypervigilance, and, uh, and they can, meaning the confused part. And uh, Dave, you know, we've got We've got some minutes before we take our break. Both of us are very aware of a very infamous case in the San Francisco Bay Area. I actually wrote an article about it, and I know you studied it, and it was called uh, the BART shooting, and the officer involved was named Meserly. Uh, can you provide our, our insight and our team members with a little bit of uh, information about what that case was all about, and and there was evidence of hypervigilance there. Absolutely, I you know I, I was having this conversation with my neighbor last night, uh, oddly enough, about that case, and it's a case that I, I present quite often. And you know, one of the aspects in regards to that, um, you know, I, I call it the stress response. It's the fight or flight response, and you know, there's there's a, a tremendous amount of physiological science that we could discuss there, but I don't think we have the time. But ultimately, when you are experiencing a fearful situation, your physiology changes, your biology changes, your body does things that that you are probably, you know, familiar with because it's happened before, but, uh, you know, the the cascade of hormones that get released into the body, such as uh, epinephrine, norepinephrine, cortisol, and, and a long list of others, uh, have been empirically proven time and time again to affect performance. Uh, Cognitively, decision-making skills tend to to decrease. Uh, Motor skills become problematic, uh, especially fine motor skills. And it just becomes harder to perform, especially when those uh, situations are time-compressed. And, you know, talking about the Mesley shooting, there was a, a very um, important psychological concept uh, that involved psychomotor skills and cognition uh, that, you know, they called it slip to capture in the trial. And basically what that is, is that's when a individual motor skill that is more well-trained than a new motor skill takes over for that new motor skill. So to better describe that in the Meserly case, they, the BART Police Department had just received tasers and got a minimal amount of taser training, none of which was under stress inoculation to ensure that they had the practical application down in a, in a simulated environment. Uh, be that as it may, the taser was also carried very close to the handgun. It's, it's a weapon that is very closely as far as ergonomically designed, it's very similar to a firearm in a lot of ways. Uh, ultimately, what happened is Johannes Mesoli drew his weapon out. Uh, he stepped back. He yelled or made some statement in regards to uh, announcing the use of the taser, and he fired one round into Oscar Grant's back. And Based on the forensic analysis of that and a lot of frame-by-frame video, there's a lot of things that you can say, see, which are consistent with what I said before. Not, not throwing the science against the law, but rather looking at it objectively, filling the basket with the fact patterns, and then applying the science. And that's what they did. 
uh, you know, the fact patterns were this. If you understand officer training, when an officer steps back and creates distance, they typically don't do that with a firearm. They do that with a taser device because they're trying to create the spread for appropriate neuromuscular incapacitation with the probes, meaning we want the probes separated on the body so that that energy is transmitted and it locks up the muscles. That's one point. Another point was that he fired one round. Typical uh, training on the range is not uh, firing just one round at a potential deadly threat. It's firing until the threat is gone. However, the taser device is one round, or not one round, but one trigger pull. Another aspect of it that, that a lot of people don't know is that if you look at the frame by frame, you can actually see he, him manipulating the thumb on the back strap of, of uh, the, the weapon. Well, the weapon he was carrying had no external safety on the back strap of the weapon. However, a taser device does have the on-off switch is in that, that area on the device. So there's a couple other things, but those were key. Uh, and then, you know, obviously within a second or two of the shooting, he raises his hands to his head and not, not sure if he, what, what he mouthed. It may not be appropriate for uh, the show anyway, but it, it was a expression of, you know, oh my God, I, that was a mistake. So when you put all those things together, you come up with this, you know, a, a very good set of objective fact patterns that would support the application of the scientific principle of slip to capture. He had actually been struggling with, with Oscar Grant before this. Okay, so this wasn't just, I don't want the audience to get the impression that Officer, you know, Mesley just, you know, arbitrarily just shot somebody in the back. He had been struggling to control Oscar Grant, had Oscar Grant down on the ground in a prone position. He was on the uh, back mount position trying to control him. Grant's trying to push up off the ground. And that's when Meserly makes a decision to, to draw his taser, only that's not the weapon he drew. Right, right. I guess a little context there would have been relevant. I sometimes forget that. A gentleman by the name of uh, Jeff Martin, who is another expert, and uh, he's also an attorney, He and he's also a human factors guy, and he um, wrote up a case study, an academic case study, based on the incident, and he traveled to the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society uh, Symposium, uh, where, you know, basically all those those scientists gather to present the latest and greatest in their field. And and he stood up and he presented the case study and the fact patterns and applied the psychological principle of slip to capture to this incident. And, uh, you know, he ultimately was able, you know, they were fully accepting of, of that. And that article was ultimately uh, peer-reviewed and published uh, with the Human Factors Ergonomic Society, which is extremely respectable in the academic community. The Out Loud Perspective awaits you in life, love, politics, a healthy lifestyle, your faith, personal development, and living an out loud life on AmericaOutloud.com. Glitch your news and entertainment network where you can listen 24-7 on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. 
The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multi-nutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Tired of watching the same old, same old sporting events? Well, kick it up a notch and get ready, America, for something you've never seen before. It's the new generation of Western superstars. Shorty Gorham's American Freestyle Bullfighting. The newest, most extreme, premier Western sporting events. Shorty Gorham's American Freestyle Bullfighting pits one freestyle bullfighter against a Spanish fighting bull in a matchup best described as the most dangerous dance on dirt. Who will win? The acrobatic, tough-as-nails Western superstar or the meanest half-ton fighting bulls on earth the future of extreme sports this is not the bullfighting that you remember this is one of the most extreme sports you'll ever see in an arena this is hand-to-horn combat on a level playing field for more information and schedule of events go to shortygoramafb.com or find them on facebook that's shortygoramafb.com or find them on facebook it's bullfighting time Well, we're back from our break with our human factors and use of force expert, David Blake. And, you know, Dave, uh, you just do uh, an admirable job for the team uh, in in representing uh, the facts and evidence. And I would just like you to spend maybe a couple of minutes talking about your background. I'm sure the people are pretty curious about you and and, uh, your law enforcement and your forensic training experience and how you came uh, to join our team and uh, some of the takeaways that uh, that you've received so far uh, since you've been on the team the last couple of years. I think probably the most important thing for people to realize is that you know there is there is a gap in the ability to apply the science that we're talking about, the human factor science, uh, from a, a law enforcement perspective to certain situations. Um, and I believe that's kind of, you know, my, the role that, that you and I and, and a handful of others are able to uh, fulfill is based on the fact that we have both that law enforcement background and the academic background. We, we've sought that out. So, you know, I, my evolution from law enforcement uh, you know, obviously had a, a lot of time being able to train these skills and was an instructor in many of these areas of arresting patrol and firearms and so on and so forth. And I got to see many of these scientific concepts in practice during training. I just didn't know what they were. And I still train law enforcement officers. And now now that I have an academic background, I sometimes even set scenarios up to to, to be able to specifically recognize those issues. But the big, the big point is, 
that background, if we can if we can get more people to take their law enforcement background, their law enforcement training background, that is that is so pivotal. You know, they, they kind of have the intuitive understanding of many of these principles in practice. If we could get them to get the education and training uh, to, to, to become more well-rounded and to look at these things from both a practical um, understanding and an academic understanding, uh, I, I, I think, you know, we'll be able to, to do what you said earlier is, is to ed educate these, the, the judges and, and the people within the criminal justice system to make sure that everybody uh, gets a, a fair interpretation of the evidence. Law enforcement, as I've said for, for many years, law enforcement is not a job for knuckle draggers. Okay, this is a serious business. If you're going to get, if you're going to strap on a gun and a taser and uh, get out on the mean streets, uh, you need to be a critical thinker. You have got to be a critical thinker. You have to look at law enforcement on many different planes, and you have to know a lot more uh, about the science of law enforcement and the use of force uh, and, and forensic investigations than, than you, know, you and I did when, when we started uh, in our careers years ago. Uh, this is a demanding field. You know, uh, Dave, you're an excellent example of this. You, you already have your master's degree. You're just finishing up with your doctorate degree. And uh, you didn't start out as an academic, but, you know, you've become one. But still, because you have so much street experience, you're able to appreciate and apply all of the applied and forensic sciences in your analysis of what's happening. Yes, I think a synthesis of the practical experience with the academic background is, is a powerful tool um, because not only can I sit here and regurgitate a peer-reviewed scientific study, but I can also say that I have seen this in practice, in, in training many, many times. And, and I think that's powerful uh, because you're, you're, coming at it from, you're coming at it from two separate directions, both the academic and the practical, the, the scholar-practitioner model, so to speak. You know, Dave, as we come to a close on our show uh, today on A Thread of Evidence, uh, again, uh, I reach out uh, to the audience and uh, those members of our forensic team and, and some of the new audience that have recently joined us. And uh, if what Dave and I are talking about, and if you go back over a thread of evidence for our last couple of shows and you stay with us, uh, I hope the, the science of forensic investigations is resonating with you. Uh, you may not want to be a person that is uh, a law enforcement officer, uh, but the, the science of forensics and forensic investigations may excite and resonate with you. I can assure you, and I know Dave would join with me in saying that, man, we have a great time out there. This is an exciting field. Uh, I think it's more exciting uh, than what you see on television. And uh, we certainly cover far more areas of investigations than they do on television. So if you are interested in that, 
please get a hold of me uh, at America Out Loud. If you go to the America Out Loud site and you look under talk show uh, hosts, you'll find Dr. Ron Martinelli. Just click on that, bring up my homepage, and on the homepage you're going to see that there is an email address there. It's very easy to remember. It's just Dr. Ron, D-R-R-O-N, at AmericaOutloud.com, and send me uh, your uh, your comments, comments on this show, on other shows, uh, questions about uh, forensic investigations in the field of study and how you can get involved. Because you don't have to watch CSI on TV. You can become CSI. And also, if you're interested in lots of great information about shooting investigations, I hope you'll read my book, which has become very popular, and it's titled... The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police. I'll say it again. The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police. And that's found on Amazon.com. And uh, that brings us to the conclusion of our show. David Blake, I want to thank you so much for uh, coming here and talking about what it's uh, like to be a forensic evidence uh, uh, tech and also a forensic analyst and expert on uh, our forensic death investigations team. Will you come back again and join us for a future show? Absolutely. We've we've only barely brushed the surface of, of what we could be talking about, so I look forward to coming back. It was an honor. And we'll have you back on soon. You've been listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, your host, and David Blake. This is a thread of evidence on America Out Loud. Be safe. We'll see you all again soon.